welcome to the Legal Lowdown podcast series by Barton Gilman. I'm your host, Diana Baudet. Today, we'll be discussing the ins and outs of medical malpractice litigation, including risk management and best practices, with seasoned medical malpractice attorney Pamela Slater-Gilman and experienced physician and consultant Dr. Karen Leitner. Dr. Karen Leitner is an experienced board-certified internal medicine physician who has been in practice for over 15 years. She completed a combined residency in internal medicine and pediatrics and worked as a primary care physician to an underserved community for seven years. For the last five years, she has worked in the medical patient advocacy at Advanced Medical Teladoc, which is the largest on-demand remote telehealth company in the U.S. and abroad. In her role there, she oversees programs in transgender medicine and behavioral health, as well as working directly with patients who have complicated medical concerns. She belongs to a large group of physician doctor moms on social media, where over 70,000 women physicians share ideas and advice on medicine, parenting, and life in general. Pam Gilman has been a trial attorney for almost 35 years, focusing her career on medical malpractice defense. She has tried and won over 70 cases brought against physicians, mid-level providers, and nurses involving all areas of medicine, including obstetrics, radiology, emergency medicine, surgery, and primary care. Pam has been named by Fortune magazine as a woman leader in the law and a top woman of law in Massachusetts. In addition, she has been recognized by Best Lawyers in America and Massachusetts Super Lawyers as a top defense lawyer for the last seven consecutive years and maintains an AV preeminent rating from the Martindale-Hubble National Law Directory, which is the highest rating available for legal ability and ethical standards. Pam is one of the founding partners of her firm and serves as co-managing partner. She is also the mother of two kids who are now young adults and in her spare time likes to run marathons. Welcome, Karen and Pam. Thank you for joining us today. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. For this podcast, Karen and Pam will be talking with each other about the kinds of questions and concerns a medical practitioner might have about a possible claim of medical malpractice. So without further delay, I'd like to turn it over to both of you. Speaking as a physician, this is Karen. Um, I think the idea of having a a malpractice suit brought against me is, is terrifying and paralyzing. So it would be helpful for me to hear what sorts of things, Pam, do you usually say to your clients at a first meeting to help them move forward? Thanks, Karen. One of the things that I try to stress to the providers that I represent is that it's a relationship that works if they feel comfortable with me and with the insurance company who has retained me to represent them. So the providers need to know that the insurance company is really on their side and working in their best interest, and the attorney is representing them, not the insurance company. And that's a very important distinction to make. I think that's really huge because we sort of think if we have an issue come up, not to speak for all physicians, but I have heard people say we are scared of the idea of getting our malpractice insurance involved not realizing that they're actually the ones that would hire our defense <laughs> if that were to come up and that they're aligned, that they want us to be you know, treated fairly and that our interests are aligned. So I think that's really helpful to know. All right. So how, how it works, at least in Massachusetts, and every state is a little bit different, but in Massachusetts, there are several medical malpractice insurance companies, and they retain the lawyers to represent the providers. And 
I have to say that the insurance companies and the claim representatives that work there are all phenomenal. They're all highly experienced, extremely well-trained, and very knowledgeable about the cases and the emotional impact of being sued um, that sometimes people forget. So the insurance company is really a, a friend in the process, but their interest is to oversee the case and make sure that at the end of the day, the right decision is made as to whether the case is going to be tried to conclusion or whether a settlement might be considered. As the defense attorney, my job is to defend my client with the expectation that the case is going to go to trial, and sometimes it doesn't. But I have very um, narrow blinders on to look at the case in terms of what is the best defense possible. And it's my job to pursue it, including retaining experts, finding witnesses, and working with my client to make sure they're comfortable with the process and understand what's going on every step of the way. And most of the time, it doesn't go to trial. Is that true? That is true. Um, I don't have statistics, but my rule of thumb is that for every case that I have assigned to me, probably half of them are cases that I think may go to trial. And that figure gets reduced over time. So it's perhaps a third of my cases, certainly in my mind, are heading down that path as we move along the discovery process. And as we get closer to trial, I'd say half of those cases ultimately don't get pursued, either because the family decides or the patient decides to dismiss the case or a settlement is entertained at that point. And so if it's a totally bogus lawsuit, will someone just dismiss it? Is there a process by which, you know, the judge will learn about the case and dismiss it before it ever goes to trial? Like, how is a case dismissed? And it's funny that you ask that, because as you and I were talking before we're doing this podcast, you had mentioned the possibility of dismissal. And I was talking about dismissal, and I realized that we were not talking the same language. So it's a, it's a great question. I think when we talk about dismissal, we're talking about a very rare situation where there might be a legal basis for a judge to dismiss the case. Those rare situations might be that the case wasn't filed within the appropriate time period, which in Massachusetts is a three-year statute of limitations, or there may be some other legal reason why the case can't go forward. They may be asserting a claim that's not recognized in Massachusetts. Uh, years ago, it would be a wrongful life type of case. So those are very rare to have a court dismiss a case. When a lawyer mm. talks about dismissal, we're almost always talking about the patient or the family opting not to pursue it. So they've started the lawsuit and then they voluntarily dismiss the case. So I think it's a it's a wonderful idea that judges would oversee and make decisions about whether cases have validity but it simply doesn't happen. The judge doesn't decide the facts. Only the jury can decide the facts. And then the other thing you told me when we were talking about it beforehand is that in Massachusetts, there's a tribunal that oftentimes a case will go before. And I thought, oh, the tribunal will just, you know, dismiss any case that doesn't seem reasonable. And you told me that's not the case. <laughs> it just means 
that there's a fee that has to be paid by the plaintiff to get the case to continue. Is that right? That's generally correct. The tribunal's job was to determine whether the case is frivolous or whether there's a medical basis to proceed. Um, There's more formal technical language, but that's the gist of it. And in Massachusetts, there is a panel of the judge, a provider, uh, whether it be a physician or a nurse or even a hospital administrator, and a lawyer. And the job of the panel is to review an offer that is made by the plaintiff's attorney. And that offer is in the form of a written offer of proof that realistically the The important piece of that offer of proof is a letter from an expert that says that what each of the defendants, if there's more than one, did was negligent and that their negligence caused the injury, which the plaintiff is complaining of. As long as there's an expert letter, the tribunal is not allowed to weigh the evidence or even consider whether there's different evidence that goes against what the expert is saying. That expert letter is the gold standard. If you have it, you can proceed. If you have it and it doesn't contain the magic words that that are required, then the tribunal will find for the defendant. Or if you don't have the expert letter, the tribunal will find for the defendant. If that happens, the plaintiff, typically it's the plaintiff's law firm, will simply post a bond. The bond amount is $6,000, but it can be reduced if the plaintiff is deemed to be indigent. So the vast majority of cases get by the tribunal because savvy plaintiff's law firms can provide an expert letter. In the rare event that a tribunal finds for the defendant, most plaintiff's attorneys will post that relatively small bond and be able to proceed with their case. And the tribunal finding is not admissible ultimately at the trial, so it doesn't help or hurt either side at the end of the day. Well, that's helpful. Thank you for going over that. So what else do you say to your clients when you first meet them to help them feel more comfortable with you? There's a checklist of items that I have in my head that I go through, much like a doctor would go through a checklist in a fairly routine basis for an office visit with a patient. And I know that I always talk about confidentiality and the importance of it. Um, I talk about the role of a personal attorney, if that's something that my client might be interested in. The vast majority of providers these days do not retain personal attorneys. Uh, I talk about the process. And at this point, I usually go into a fair amount of detail about what a medical malpractice case involves from start to finish. So the snapshot of that is that typically a medical malpractice case goes through a couple of phases. The first is the investigation phase, which is called discovery. And the second is the kind of behind-the-scenes investigation, which is typically retention of experts to review the case. Then there's often a waiting period while we're being queued up for trial, so to speak. So from start to finish, and this is often very disturbing to my clients when they hear this, and I tell them during the first visit that they can expect that the medical malpractice case will take about four years from start to finish. Finish being a trial in the event there's a trial. I also tell them that most cases don't go to trial, and the options are to either settle or for the family 
to dismiss the case, which does happen from time to time, and that a trial, when it does happen, can be anywhere from one week on the short side to four weeks or more on the long side. It depends on the nature of the claim, the complexity of the medicine, the extent of the damages, the number of people who've been sued, and the number of experts who are going to testify. I know I was surprised to hear how long the trial length typically is because I think we hear, you know, these things can stretch out for years. It's four years from start to finish. And I think I had this vision of having to go to court every week for four years. (laughs) So when you said it was, you know, a week to to four to six weeks, I thought, well, that doesn't seem that long. But I think if you're up there, you know, listening to your reputation be um, attacked or, you know, having to relive the details of of a case that was emotionally difficult, that could still feel like an eternity but not as long as four years of being in trial would seem. So glass half full, that seems a lot more manageable. The practical considerations sometimes are overwhelming for physicians when it gets close to trial because there's an incredible disruption to their office practice. It's a requirement uh, that the doctor be in court every day unless there's some unusual circumstance which would require them to not be present. And you have to keep in mind that many of the people I represent are no longer in Massachusetts. They may have been a resident when they were sued and have moved on to a different state. They may have simply had a personal change of circumstance and gone to a different state or even out of the country. But it's important that they're there for the trial so that the jury knows that they're invested in the case and that it means something to them. Can you comment again about the statistics in terms of, I know in Massachusetts, We tend to be a physician-friendly state and what percentage of trials ultimately rule in in favor of the defense as compared to, you know, without a statistic, but just more generally speaking nationally, because I think some of our listeners are not going to be from Massachusetts. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to say that if you're going to be sued, Massachusetts is a state to be sued in if you're a provider, because we have about a 90% success rate, meaning for every case that goes to trial and gets a verdict, uh, the provider will prevail roughly 90% of the time. And that statistic has been true for the last 35 years um, or longer, but certainly as long as I've been practicing. Pam, can you talk a little bit about the, the typical kinds of clinical situations that might bring up a lawsuit? Sure. Many of the cases are fact-specific, but big-picture issues come up again and again and again. For example, there are often cases involving medication errors. There are often cases involving documentation. And one of the things that I've seen more frequently in the past few years are cases involving the allegation that a physician has failed to follow up on a particular test or lab. Can you give an example of one of those? Sure. Um, I had a case many years ago that was very troubling to me because, in my opinion, the provider did everything right and was still sued. So in the particular case, the provider 
was a gynecologist who saw a patient for a routine exam. And during the course of the exam, the gynecologist performed a breast exam and felt something that gave her concern. So even though the patient had just had a mammogram, which had been reported as normal, the provider wanted the patient to be seen for a surgical consult. And I think most people would accept the proposition that the standard of care simply required the provider to make that recommendation to the patient. But my client actually took it a step further. and She made the recommendation, and she actually walked the patient to the front desk, had the front desk call a surgeon and schedule the appointment for the patient, and then the front desk wrote a card out, a appointment card, and handed it to the patient. As the events unfolded, the patient opted not to go to the surgical consult and ultimately had a change in insurance and so never went back to the, my provider for future care. Um, and about two years later, my client received a summons and she was sued for failing to follow up and make sure that the patient went to the surgical consult that she had scheduled for her. Patient developed metastatic cancer and she died right before trial, but the case did go to trial. And the argument that the plaintiff's attorney weighed, and it was a very well-respected plaintiff's attorney, is that my client should have not only scheduled the appointment, but she should have ensured that the patient went to the appointment. And the way she should have ensured it, according to the plaintiff's attorney, was to keep some record of who she's referred and for what, and then check to make sure that she got a report back from that referring doctor. So in this case, since the, there was no surgical consult report that was sent back to my provider, the plaintiff's attorney argued that that should have triggered her realization that the patient didn't go. Thankfully, the jury did the right thing and found for my client but it is troubling that someone can be sued for that. It's extremely troubling because it takes away the significance of personal accountability on the part of the patient. And that from a provider's standpoint, there's just no, that's really more to me of a systems issue. It'd be great if we had a system where you made a referral and then it just checked off all the ones that get followed up. But we're talking about thousands and thousands of referrals that you make and there's no way to, you know, I could see on the part of the, the plaintiff, you could say, well, this isn't the same as just referring somebody to get their toenail looked at. You know, this is like a breast mask, the surgeon should have, I mean, I can see that argument being made, but as a, as someone in practice doing this, it seems preposterous. It seems like it's placing an undue burden on the physician to control people who need to make the best decisions for themselves. So it is kind of shocking to hear that this kind of case could go to trial. It is uh, uplifting to know that the jury did the right thing. Um, but I think it contributes to this feeling of like, I could get sued for anything I do. <laughs> Not enough to provide good care, to document it clearly, to, 
you know, have empathy, to be up on current standards of care, this just seems way out in left field. Um, but fortunately, I think this case is memorable to you because because of that reason, because it just seems, you know, there's a reason it stands out to you. So that also, I think, makes me feel a little bit better because this is not the majority of cases that I think, hopefully, get taken to trial. It, it's It's not the majority of cases, and that is the good news. I think that this raises this issue that you had talked to me about previously, where if there's a bad outcome, it's the outcome that oftentimes drives the suit, whether or not care was appropriate or not. And so in situations you said where people are dealing with complicated cases and potential bad outcomes, there's going to be a lawsuit. And, you know, I think as a provider, that's hard to wrap your head around because it's not it's not that only bad doctors get sued. <laughs> it's that when people die, oftentimes, or have, you know, when babies are born, or people are hospitalized, you know, I think this is just hard for physicians to accept, but it's, it's fact. It, it, it is fact. And certainly most of the lawsuits that are pursued are bigger damage cases. Most will involve a neurologically damaged child or the death of a young mother with children, a person who's had a limb amputated. Bigger damages because economically, the plaintiff's lawyers only recover if there's a monetary judgment or settlement at the end of the case. So the economics for plaintiff's attorneys, that they have to win their case, and then they typically get, on average, a third of the recovery. That's not so on the defense side. So you know, our, our goal is to defend our clients, whether the case is big or small. But they tend to be bigger cases. But there still are some small cases that are out there. I just recently had a trial where the allegation was that the dermatologist negligently, and I'm not kidding, negligently popped a pimple, causing a small blemish on this very attractive woman's cheek. And that went to trial, just like the big cases. Um, so you, you can have the full range of allegations, and uh, the insurance companies will defend even those small cases because it's in their interest over the long term to make sure that the plaintiff's attorney doesn't continue to bring a lot of small cases with the hope that they'll just get a, a quick settlement. So even if economically it doesn't make sense for an insurance company to spend lots of money defending a case, they will absolutely do it if that's the right thing to do and the provider wants to proceed to trial. Again, the insurance companies are, are often your, your best friend in this process and a wonderful resource um, for both comfort and guidance to get you through the process along with the lawyer and the law firm um, that's been hired to represent the provider. We have probably sufficiently terrified physicians listening. And it'd be a good time for some words of comfort that I know 
we can deliver. So I was thinking, could you tell the the story about the the um, the doctor who was sued because of the heart? Yeah, um, sure. The heart test, and also, can you tell us that little vignette about? you and your OBGYN and your friend who was asking you why you would see them when you could tell that they had had a lawsuit brought against them. I I wish, Karen, that I could tell the folks who are listening that there's a super secret recipe for avoiding litigation. But even if you have all the right ingredients, there's still a chance that you'll be sued if there's a bad outcome. However, On the bright side, I always tell folks that you shouldn't be driven by the fear of litigation because the outcome is often out of your control. Bad things happen despite good care. And all a provider can do is follow their natural instincts to provide excellent, compassionate care to their patients. For many people that helps get them through the day-to-day. When I was younger and childbearing age, many of my friends would come to me and say, Pam, I'm so worried about how to choose the right provider. My OBGYN, who I was always very comfortable with, has actually had a lawsuit against her. I saw that on the physician profile which is something that is um, available on the Board of Registration of Medicine website. And I've told my friends, and I believe it because I followed the same practice, that if your OBGYN has not been sued, they probably haven't delivered enough babies and probably haven't um, taken care of the higher-risk population because it's inevitable if you are an OBGYN and you practice a full career, you will have an unexpected, sad, and often tragic outcome. And those cases will be brought despite the best care that you provided, care that complied, if not exceeded, the standard of care. So I know I followed that advice because my OBGYN was sued a couple of times, and I was pretty comforted to see that (laughs) as a reality, um, because I knew that meant that she was making the tough decisions that had to be made. But oftentimes, you know, the doctors are so fearful and embarrassed by a lawsuit that they're not comfortable sharing the fact that they've been sued with family or friends or colleagues. Oh, I represented a client once very memorable, one of the nicest folks that I had ever met. And he was sued because a patient who had come to him with a complaint of chest pain ultimately had a cardiac arrest while driving and died in the car accident. My client's involvement was that although he did an EKG, which showed no abnormality, he asked the patient to get a Holter monitor. And I don't know how they work these days, but this was many decades ago. (laughs) And the Holter monitor strip was sent to a third-party service who reviewed the strip and then would contact the provider. The patient transmitted a strip to the third-party service, 
and the service misread the strip and didn't contact the doctor. And in the next couple of days, she unfortunately had this car accident. My client was devastated by the outcome and even more devastated that he was sued because of it. He did everything right. The problem was in the interpretation of the strip, which he had no control over and wasn't even aware had been sent, but he was sued. He didn't tell his family. He didn't tell his friends. He didn't tell his colleagues. And the case went to trial. And although it's really uncommon for a reporter to be present during a trial, it just so happened that of all the cases, he had the bad luck of having a reporter who probably had nothing better to do that day and ended up in our courtroom. And it is a public courtroom, and the reporter came day after day throughout the trial. At the end of the case, my client won, but the jury, for reasons that we don't know, found that my client was negligent, but that it didn't cause the injury. I honestly think that the jury may have been thinking that his negligence was in using that particular company <laughs> to review his strips <laughs> or maybe something else, but it obviously had no bearing on the outcome. Um, in any event, the reporter decided that the headline in the local paper would read, Doctor Found Negligent. The small print said, ultimately exonerated because jury found that he wasn't responsible for the injury. But that was, you'd have to read a little bit farther down in that article to see that. And my client was devastated. He called me the next day, said he couldn't go to work. He was embarrassed to be seen. He was thinking about actually moving to a different town. And I spoke to him a couple of times over the next week. And maybe two weeks later, I get a call from my client. And he said, Pam, I still wish the reporter hadn't been there. But the fact that this was headline news was the best thing that ever happened to me in light of the fact that I had the lawsuit filed. Because he said his patients rallied around him and told him what a fabulous doctor he was. His family, most of whom didn't know about the case other than the wife who I insisted he told the day before trial started, rallied around him. What was most meaningful to my client was that his longtime mentor called him and told him that he himself had been sued three times, and he wished that my client had reached out to him so that they could have provided support for each other. And my client said, you know, a very valuable lesson that even though you have to go through a lawsuit, which isn't fun and can be very emotionally draining, it also can be very uplifting to know that you have the support of your friends, your family, your colleagues, and even more uplifting when the jury does the right thing and exonerates them from any wrongdoing. So lesson learned for him. Thankfully, I know he ultimately retired and didn't have another lawsuit, but uh, <laughs> it, it always is something that I, I keep in the back of my mind when I have a client who's hesitant to tell family and friends, and I usually share that story with them. There's also a lot of support services. Insurance companies have support services for doctors who are going through a lawsuit. They provide counseling. There are individual support groups. And again, the claims representative and the legal team are always there to help the provider through the rough spots. 
The other thing I wanted to ask you about was that when I was in medical school, we were taught that if you make a mistake and you apologize to your patient, that's the best way to, at least this is how I remember it, that's the best way to avoid being sued. It's just to be open and honest, never hide anything, and apologize. And I'm wondering if you can comment about that. Yeah. To be open and honest is always a great thing. To apologize is not necessarily the best course to take. So in Massachusetts, effective November of 2012, the legislature enacted a new statute, which we call the Apology Statute. You've probably heard about it. And in essence, the statute Mm -hmm. says that a statement or conduct expressing regret, apology, condolence by a provider is inadmissible in court. But there's a caveat. It's inadmissible unless the maker of the statement or an expert who's testifying on behalf of the provider makes an inconsistent or contradictory statement during the course of the litigation. Nobody's quite sure what that means. So it Oftentimes, if there's an unexpected outcome, the providers, certainly that I represent, and I assume throughout the country, are very quick to blame themselves, to think, it must have been my fault. I wish I had done something differently. I'm going to talk to my patient and let them know how sorry I am. And it may turn out that a day or a week or a couple weeks later, you learn different facts than what you thought to be true. So our advice is always to express sadness over the outcome. You can even use the word, I'm so sorry that you've gone through this experience, but don't accept blame unless you're absolutely positive of the facts. It's also important not to drag someone else in, (laughs) drag another provider into the discussion, because you don't necessarily know what they did and what they're thinking was and what their communications were with the patient. So proceed with caution on that apology, I guess, is the advice I would give. (laughs) I thought of one more point I wanted to ask you to clarify. I also, I don't know where all these urban legends get spread, but I had heard that you need to be very careful because the risk management uh, team at your hospital might be looking to protect the hospital and not looking to protect you. And so Sometimes you might even need your own counsel separate from what the hospital counsel would be that, you know, they might throw you under the bus and you need to be vigilant against that. Can you comment about that at all? Sure. Uh, there's actually different layers to the question that I'm not even sure you, re- you realized when you asked me, but in Massachusetts, nonprofit entities are subject to a limitation of liability of $100,000 in medical malpractice cases. It's $20,000 in other types of cases. So generally, the plaintiffs will not want to proceed against the hospital because the most they can collect is $100,000. What that means in reality is that the hospitals work closely with the nurses and the doctors within their facility to ensure that they have the best defense possible because the hospital will never be the target. The other thing that sort of blew my mind in talking to you was this idea that each provider has a limit to the amount of money their malpractice insurance will cover. It might be a million dollars. It might be $2 million. And so on the provider side, you think about there was a case of a patient in the hospital and it didn't go well. 
And now, you know, 20 people were sued. Well, why would they sue me? You know, I was just the intern. I saw them once. I don't even know anything about this case. And you said, well, every person they, you know, every person they, they sue against, that's another potential one or $2 million. It's really about the money and not much else. And I thought, oh, I never thought of it that way before. That makes so much sense. Yeah, at the end of the day, I know my clients are always worried about their personal exposure. And as a practical matter, the plaintiff's attorney wants the insurance. That's a lot easier to collect. Um, So the more people they sue, the more potential pot. So uh, that is the reality of the economics of a medical malpractice case. And we don't differentiate in Massachusetts between who is more responsible. There's no allocation among defendants. So if you're in for a little bit, you're in for the whole thing. And it's all about the insurance money at the end of the day. I guess the the takeaway that I'd like people to have is that you can do little things to improve the possibility that a lawsuit won't be filed. But in reality, those little things that you do will simply help bolster your defense when you are sued because you can't control whether a patient is going to file the lawsuit or not. Karen and Pam, thank you so much for joining us today. I think it's been so valuable for our listeners to hear a conversation between two experts. Um, you know, Karen's questions are are genuine and based on her professional experience and, and likely personal concerns. And Pam, your experience in helping physicians and other medical providers through these situations is extensive, so your advice is so valuable. If you'd like more information about medical malpractice, please check out our website at www.bglaw.com. And as always, you can find other Legal Lowdown podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, or on our website under the podcasts in our news section. Thank you to our listeners, and have a good day. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman is a leading civil litigation law firm with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York. Our attorneys represent a variety of clients in a wide range of matters, and our trial attorneys appear regularly in the federal and state courts of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, as well as before various administrative agencies. Barton Gilman and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including 2017 Champions for Justice, 2015 Outstanding Philanthropic Business, Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, and Super Lawyers, to name just a few. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903.